This is On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. On Tuesday, July 30th, 1996, Richard Jewell was praised as a hero on NBC's Today Show. The security guard hired for the Summer Olympics in Atlanta spotted a suspicious knapsack at Centennial Olympic Park, where tens of thousands of visitors were gathered. Two people died and 111 were injured when the bomb inside exploded. But Jewell's vigilance and the evacuation that followed likely saved hundreds of lives. Less than 12 hours after chatting with Katie Couric, Jewell was being questioned by the FBI as the primary suspect in that bombing. The suspect is a new book about how law enforcement and the media turned a hapless, innocent man into presumed bomber. Authors Kent Alexander and Kevin Salwin were both there. Alexander as U.S. attorney for the Northern District of Georgia. Kevin Salwin was editor for the Wall Street Journal's coverage of the 96 Summer Olympic Games. The book is just out, and Salwin and Alexander consulted on the film Richard Jewell for director Clint Eastwood, which was coming out in early December. Together, they will be at the Atlanta History Center to talk Talk about the book tonight. Kevin Selwyn, Kent Alexander, welcome. Thanks. Pleasure to be here. Thanks. Glad to be here. Well, your book, The Suspect, tells the story of what a coup it was for Atlanta to win the Centennial Olympic Games. This is a campaign started in 1987 when Atlanta was called one of the murder capitals of the U.S. and the city too busy to reload. Now, Olympics are always targets for terrorists. And in the early 90s, we have Oklahoma City, we have Ruby Ridge, we have these domestic terrorism incidents happening as they were preparing the venues. Richard Jewell is among some 30,000 people hired for security. What had his record in law enforcement been up to that, Kevin? Well, Richard was very much a mixed bag. He was, a, he was in many ways a terrific rural police officer. Um, he loved road duty. He had um, he had worked at a couple of jobs in North Georgia at the Habersham County Sheriff's Office, and then at the um, Piedmont College campus as a campus police officer. But Richard was often a little bit more zealous than people wanted him to be. He was also a terrible driver, and that <laughs> absolutely redounded to his disbenefit. Because what happened uh, was that multiple times, Richard, when he was at the Habersham County Sheriff's Office, he would wreck vehicles. And so he came to Atlanta as part of this security force, um, basically to resuscitate his career and to wait for the possibility of other police jobs to reopen because nobody was going to hire before the games. Mm-hmm. So Jewel was the guard stationed at the AT&T Sound and Light Tower at Centennial Park. Then just minutes before a 911 call comes in, warning of a bomb set to explode in half an hour, Jewel sees something suspicious. Tell us how he found the bomb. So he was going around and he came across a group of kids drinking and they're shotgunning buds, Budweiser's. He was trying to get them out of there and they wouldn't leave. So he flagged down a GBI agent named Tom Davis, who was an assistant supervisor in the park, to get him to get them out of there. Finally, they got them out of there, and the the package, the Alice pack, a military pack that held a bomb, was hidden under a bench right next to the tower. Richard Jewell's the one who pointed to it after the kids left and said, that shouldn't be there. Both of them, both of them, Tom Davis and Richard Jewell, walk around different sides of the tower asking everyone, not their package. So next thing that happened is they called it in, Two bomb techs, one from ATF, one from FBI, come in, wind their way through the crowd, crawl up, look at the package. They're not supposed to touch it, but one of them does open the lip of it 
and Richard's watching them as the guy's got a pen light and the guy sees wires and pipes and suddenly realizes this is the real thing. And so they call in the bomb squad. At that point, I'll turn it over to you. Sure, yeah, and at that point, uh, actually before that, Richard runs up and down the tower to give people a pre-warning. Hey, there's a suspicious package. We may have a problem. If I tell you it's a real bomb, you get out of here as fast as possible. And then he runs to back to the outside. They create a perimeter. There are 50,000 roughly people in the park and maybe 10,000 in this area, fairly close to the stage and the tower. And um, as soon as Richard realizes, yes, this is actually a bomb, he races back in the tower. He says, all you people get out of here, get out of here now. He's literally pushing people down the stairs mm -hmm. to try to save their lives. And at 1.20 in the morning, as the uh, GBI and other agents are considering, do we close this park? Do we evacuate these people? The bomb goes off. That is audio from a camcorder video taken by a tourist. There's a, just a gruesome scene there. Alice Hawthorne, a woman, dies with her young daughter there. A Turkish cameraman has a heart attack rushing to the scene. Uh, in all, 111 people injured. The ground is just covered with shrapnel from the largest bomb the FBI or the ATF had ever encountered. Authorities said the device appeared to be a pipe bomb loaded with nails and screws designed to penetrate human flesh. Kent, you were awakened by a phone call. You rushed to the scene, and later you met Richard Jewell. Yes, I, I met Richard that morning. He was standing outside what was then called the Inform Building at the loading dock, and I went over to shake his hand and to thank him for what he did, and Tom Davis too, because enough of the story had gotten out so that we knew that without the two of them, a lot more people would have died. So that was, that was my first contact with Richard, and uh, you know, things changed after that, but I, was, I just remember shaking his hand and and he said, uh, sir, I was just doing my job. Well, that was a line he used in the following three days when he was helping investigators with details of discovering the bomb and being squired about as a hero and praised for bravery on CNN, on Good Morning America, and on the Today Show on Tuesday with Katie Couric. The FBI starts getting calls from people who, who knew Jewel, and Quantico starts its own investigation and psychological profile of Jewel. So suddenly he's a suspect. Ken, how did the FBI approach this investigation into Jewel? So there were two prongs or two parallel tracks. One, investigators went up to Habersham County to talk to everybody who knew Richard Jewell. And the, what came back was, yeah, he's a little overzealous, kind of want to be cop, and he really is going to want to get back in law enforcement. The parallel track to that was the behavioral science unit. They had taken a look at the interviews with CNN. And they took a look at those and took a look at just a couple of reports that had come out, an interview with Richard Jewell, and crafted a profile of the potential bomber. And the profile was one of Richard Jewell. And it was part interview advice, how to interview Richard Jewell. And it was part saying, though this isn't a science and subjective and all of that, part of it was very much, this is your guy. He did it. And so when the interviews in Habersham County saying wannabe cop, wants to get back in law enforcement, overzealous came through, and the same language independently appeared in this profile, and the two came together on Monday afternoon, it was uh, yeah, kind of lock solid at that point. And Richard Jewell jumped from a third tier possible suspect, because you always look at the guy who found the bomb, to absolutely number one. So by the time the Katie Couric interview 
came around on Tuesday morning. There were, he had been tailed since the night before. There was a 24-hour uh, tailing of Jewel. My guests are Kent Alexander and Kevin Salwin, co-authors of The Suspect, an Olympic bombing, the FBI, the media, and Richard Jewell, the man caught in the middle. Alexander was U.S. attorney based in Atlanta when Richard Jewell was presumed to be behind the bombing at Centennial Park during the 96 Olympics. Salwin was editor for the Wall Street Journal's coverage of the Games. So there are 15,000 reporters from around the world covering the games. But, of course, the local paper, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, had strategically wanted to own these games with 325 reporters covering the Olympics, including Kathy Scruggs, who's a prominent character in your book. Who was Kathy Scruggs and what was her reputation as a reporter? Kathy was, she was in many ways a throwback from the 1930s newspaper wars. She was, um, she's sexy, she's profane, she's a heavy drinker, a heavy smoker, she keeps a gun in her purse, you know, and um, and loved to go to local haunts like Manuel's Tavern and hang out there with the homicide cops. When it came to breaking news, there was nobody better on the law enforcement beat and the police beat than Kathy Scruggs. How did she become the person or find out that Richard Jewell was under investigation? Well, Kathy worked very hard at trying to find the story. Her, one of her mottos was, we're not in the business of being last. And so... She worked very hard to source the story. She heard a tip. She reached back out to a very good source of hers. They met in a bar, and together they discussed the fact that Richard Jewell had turned from being the hero to the lead suspect. And um, this person explained to Kathy that Richard was a wannabe cop. There was a lot of what was in that behavioral science unit profile that Kent had talked about. And now Kathy comes back into the newsroom and says, let's run this story. And so the next morning, Ron Martz, her partner on the story, calls the FBI and in a very unusual situation, reads the FBI the story verbatim and says, I have two questions. Number one, is the story accurate? And number two, will it hinder the investigation? The FBI agent, who's the public affairs officer, says, no, I'm already hearing Richard Jewell's name from other news organizations, so it will not ruin the investigation. And number two, for the most part, the story is true. There's certain things I can't confirm because I don't know them. But for the most part, the story sounds true. And I should note that this public affairs officer really wasn't involved in the investigation. So he sort of didn't know. The two of them were a little bit at cross purposes. And, they go, and Ron Martz gets off the phone, tells his editors what had happened, and they decide to run with the story. So this story comes out, the AJC's special afternoon edition with the headline, FBI suspects hero guard may have planted bomb. And we should note, this is 1996, and it's the dawn of online media and 24-7 news coverage. Publishing the story is akin to like pulling the pin off the grenade. How does the FBI react when they know, when they hear that the AJC is going to run with this story? So the FBI agent who took the call marches upstairs, tells his boss what happened. They tell the entire crew, the leadership of the FBI, and there is fist pounding all around. Nobody, nobody wanted this out. The profile that I mentioned was part interview advice, and it was very clear that there were going to be two interviews. One, a soft interview with Richard Jewell, just getting him to talk about what happened, and then if it turns out that that led to something, or even if it didn't, because the assumption was, frankly, 
by most that he did it. Following that, maybe a couple of days later would be the hard-hitting interview. But the interview wasn't going to happen for a day, a couple of days. It, w it was still in the works. Suddenly, the interview had to happen that day. So, right, there's this rush to get Jewel in to be interviewed before the story hits. And you've got two agents assigned to interrogate Jewel, Don Johnson and D. Rosario. And Johnson makes up a ruse to get Jewel in to talk. How did they get Jewel to come in for questioning? Well, the, the two agents went to his mother's apartment, Bobby Jewell's apartment, knocked on the door. Uh, Richard Jewell was concerned because he had already gone out on the steps. Media was starting to gather because word of the impending story was coming out. And somebody said, are they looking at you? Are you a suspect? I, no, I'm not a suspect. And he goes back in. So he asks Don Johnson, am I a suspect? No, you're not a suspect. And then Don Johnson, I think, is just trying to figure out a way to get him in. And as law enforcement do in lots of circumstances, you create a ruse. And they're thinking, this is the bomber. So the ruse becomes, we just want you to come in and we're going to do a training video for first responders. And we're even going to film it. So Richard Jules like a little skeptical of this, but this is the FBI telling him this. So he said, well, I'll do it. But what happens if I go in with you? They'll think I'm under arrest. And it may have been Bobby Jewell who said, why don't you just drive separate cars? So the agents walk out through a group of media. Richard Jewell walks out behind them. Uh, Kathy Scruggs is actually in the parking lot next to her Mazda Miata. They walk out. The agents turn one way. They go to the right. Richard Jewell walks towards his pickup truck walks within four or five feet of Kathy Scruggs, gets in, people are asking questions, did you do it, did you do it? He follows the agents in, and as they're driving the FBI, to the FBI headquarters, the story's coming out. Just before the story comes out, we're on the phone with Washington, with Louis Free, Merrick Garland, others. And Louis Free's head of the FBI at this Louis point. Louis Free's director of the FBI at this point. And Merrick Garland is at the Justice Department. And so we're talking about what do we do about Miranda? Well, the decision was made. Richard Jewell's coming in, but he's free to leave. He's not under arrest. We don't have enough to arrest him. So the idea was just let him know he's free to leave. And then if he's ever at any point going to be placed under arrest, immediately read him his Miranda rights. So that's the decision. So as Louis Free and, and Merrick Garland are mulling over this decision, less than an hour into the interview, the agents Don Johnson and D. Rosario get word from Washington insisting that Jewel should be given Miranda rights. But Jewel thinks he's only there to film a training video for first responders. How, Kevin, how did they pull that off in the interview room? At that point, um, Don Johnson says, Richard, this is for exactly what we told you it's for meaning the training video. We're still going to use this for training purposes, but I want to make it even more realistic. And so we're even going to go so far as to read you your rights. And um, Richard Jewell, of course, and as a law enforcement officer, has read those rights to people hundreds of times. And he knows this is no longer a training video. And you just watch his face. We've seen the video of that. And you just watch his face just completely drop. It's a shocking moment for him. And yet, you know, Richard is certain that he is not involved in this. And so he, you know, decides to go on with the interview. But is it regular procedure for the director of the FBI to be involved in a questioning like that? Unheard of. Absolutely unheard of. But in this case, when you're the director of the FBI and you've had things like Waco go horribly wrong, you've had Oklahoma City, you want to make sure that things go right. And from 
Louis Fries' perspective, I'm sure that's what he wanted to do. So part of the issue became he was making calls from 500 miles away about things going on in Atlanta, but a further issue yet is nobody could hear what was going on in that room. So there was some lack of communication here and lack of knowledge that ended up getting amplified into a bigger problem because decisions were being made outside of that room. And uh, at the end of the day, this whole experience changed Richard Jewell's life in ways he could have never predicted and imagined in the life of his mother, Bobby Jewell. What they went through afterwards is something I would never want to see anyone go through. We are getting the behind-the-scenes story of the man wrongly accused of planning a bomb at the 1996 Olympics in Atlanta with Kent Alexander and Kevin Salwin. They're authors of The Suspect, an Olympic bombing, the FBI, the media, and Richard Jewell, the man caught in the middle. We're going to take a short break, but stick around for the story of a man wronged and ultimately redeemed when On Second Thought continues. We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. Next month, Clint Eastwood's much-anticipated film, Richard Jewell, comes out in theaters. My guests consulted for the film, Kent Alexander and Kevin Salwin, interviewed nearly 200 people and went through thousands of pages of documents and records and articles to research their new book, The Suspect. Kent Alexander played a critical role in clearing Jewell's name. He was U.S. attorney for the Northern Georgia District at that time. Kevin Salwin was editor for the Wall Street Journal's coverage of the 1996 Summer Olympic Games. They're going to be at the Atlanta History Center tonight to talk about the book with Bert Roten, who was at the AJC at the time, and John Pruitt, who was anchor at WSB-TV. Both of them are now retired. Let's pick up here. There is so much detail in this book after you two spoke with so many people, but I'm going to squash things together and just say the jewel never even charged, but absolutely vilified in public. There was a uh, well-publicized search of his home, the parking lot outside of his apartment complex on Buford Highway, where he lived with his mother, thick with reporters. Very few people publicly encouraging restraint. Now, he's got his friend, Watson Bryant, initially representing him. He was way over his head as a commercial loan lawyer. But he assembles his legal team. And meanwhile, Kent, you were meeting with one of those lawyers, Jack Martin, from the team, and made a deal with him for investigators to interview Jewel again and either charge him or not. And ended up, after that interview, writing a letter saying he was no longer a target. And Richard Jewell holds a press conference at the Marriott in Atlanta two days later. This is the first time I have ever asked you to turn your cameras on me. For 88 days, I lived a nightmare. For 88 days, my mother lived a nightmare too. And it's rushed for the headline that the hero was the bomber. The media cared nothing for my feelings as a human being. So leading up to that letter, how did you and the FBI come to realize that he had not planted the bomb? So the more we reviewed, the more it became apparent that there was as much showing that Richard Jewell did not do it as he did. So it was a matter of just looking through it through an objective prism. And as time went on, it became clearer and clearer that it, it just didn't look like he was the bomber. So we're talking a period of three months, ultimately, before the, I wrote this letter. It's called a non-target letter. Technically, it just says you're not a target of the investigation, but the media took that as a full clearance, which was great. That was the hope. Uh, at that point, it was time, we thought, to make an unusual statement, a public statement about somebody 
status at the Justice Department. Normally, if somebody's under investigation, you never talk about it. But with Richard Jewell, it just seemed like the fair thing to do since his name had been muddied and splashed so badly to put something out. The FBI, to their credit, uh, they were fully supportive. They said, it's the right thing to do. Let's do it. So by the time you wrote and delivered that letter, the FBI had a sketch of what they were calling Goatee Man, who turned out to be the actual bomber, Eric Robert Rudolph. But Richard Jewell's legal team goes after NBC, CNN, The New York Post, all of whom settle with him. The AJC fought the lawsuit in a case that went all the way up to the Georgia Supreme Court. Finally, the AJC prevailed. But from a media and public perspective, why do you think people were so willing to seize on this story that Richard Jewell was guilty? This is 1996 is a fascinating year in media because it's the year that it's so CNN's already up and running. But Fox News Channel starts up that year. MSNBC starts up that year. Several publications, major publications go online for the first time. And now all of a sudden, the pace of media starts to completely change. And with that, the public's expectation for when they should receive information completely starts to shift. And in many ways, it's social media set in a pre-social media environment. Mm -hmm. What you're seeing most of the reporters and journalists do is very much the equivalent of today's you know, retweets or Facebook shares. There's not a lot of information being gathered but instead they turn the dial a little bit, they repeat the stories, or they amplify the stories in a way that's remarkably damaging. And Richard Jewell's life starts to become this cloistered, incredibly claustrophobic experience inside his own mother, inside his mother's apartment. And the, the blinds are drawn. One of his friends described it as like being a rat in a cage. Mm. I mean, it was, it's dark. He's watching television, and every channel has him as the lead suspect. He's, he's called a failed fat sheriff deputy. He's called the Unabubba by Jay Leno on The Tonight Show. Um, he's, he's compared to the guy who whacked Nancy Kerrigan in the Winter Olympics. And Jay Leno says, you know, what is it about fat, stupid guys at the Olympics? So in the court of public opinion, Richard Jewell is absolutely tried and convicted, whereas in the court of law enforcement, that's not happening. Yeah. And to tack on to what Kevin said, one reason the public wanted to know so much is this was the biggest story of the Olympics. And when I was the FBI, we had never seen any reaction like this to an ongoing investigation ever. And this sounds like it was the sign of things to come in many ways. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's mm -hmm. super true. And um, the interesting thing is it moves much more quickly now. For Richard Jewell, it was three months basically cloistered in his home. You know, now it's over in three days and everybody moves on except for the sad person who is in the crosshairs of this. I can't help but think that what Richard Jewell went through feels like a precursor of what we see today with online cancel culture. And I'm wondering, with the rise of social media, is, is this a growing problem? Are we seeing more Richard Jewells or fewer? The democratization of media is a blessing and a curse. You know, in many ways, it's given us far more voices than we had before. We have the opportunity to hear from a wide range of perspectives, that kind of thing. At the same time, 
what uh, social media in particular has done is it's allowed all of those incorrect stories to be amplified. To add on, there are definitely more Richard Jewels today. There are Richard Jewels every single day. With social media, when a name goes out and a false accusation goes out, that happens day in, day out. The difference is somebody's name can be cleared instantly or they can become a huge suspect instantly. In this instance, I really shudder to think what would have happened if there had truly been social media back in 1996. As bad as it was, the number of people who come out of the woodwork on Reddit, on Facebook, Twitter, you name it, with things they want to say, I don't know how you recover from something like that. And while some people may move on now when they're named as a suspect or they're, named, they're falsely accused because the news cycle moves on, their reputation lives on on the Internet forever. So it's, uh, it's a problem. I have to say my heart broke for Richard Jewell. You know, uh, a man who, like all of us, had, certainly had his faults. But what did you come to think of him as a person and as a hero? Yeah, I'll, I'll start on that. I, th I think... Um I think Richard was very human, you know. He he had, he was gregarious. Um, he was a he was a smart police officer at times who did very good work. Um, and but at the same time, he had his flaws. He had his very human flaws. But the fact that um, two of the largest institutions in our country, the FBI and the media, uh, make the mistake and jo and essentially join forces to ruin his life. Um, makes this an American tragedy, and Richard Jewell is the is a, the person who should have a statue of him in Atlanta, and um, should be known as being a hero. And the fact that there's still this muddiness among the population to as to whether Richard Jewell actually was the villain or what his role was should be clarified. And we're hoping that this book, you know, Kent and I were exhaustive on this. We we did 187 interviews. We read through over 90,000 pages in documents. We did a bunch of Freedom of Information Act requests to get the story right because we felt Richard Jewell deserved that and we felt that everybody needed to know the real story. I just love Richard Jewell. What happened to him was tragic, but he's the person who really saved the Olympic Games in a lot of ways. Kent Alexander, Kevin Salwin, I want to thank you both so much for speaking with me. Our pleasure. Absolutely great to be here. Kent Alexander and Kevin Selwyn, the co-authors of the book The Suspect, an Olympic bombing, the FBI, the media, and Richard Jewell, the man caught in the middle. They are consultants for the forthcoming film Richard Jewell from director Clint Eastwood. You can watch a trailer for the film at our website, gpbnews.org. Both Kent and Kevin will be at the Atlanta History Center tonight to talk about their book, along with Bert Roten. He's formerly of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and John Pruitt, longtime anchor of WSB-TV, now retired.